We turn to God's word as found in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. This is his holy, inerrant, infallible word. May we be most attentive to it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is a generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Thus far, the reading of God's word to us this morning. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the proclamation of it. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we looked at Psalm 24 from the perspective of three points. Our Lord's possession, our Lord's presence, And then how we are to respond, how we are to respond to our Lord's possession, our Lord's presence. In our concluding look at Psalm 24 this morning, we're going to look further into our Lord's might and our Lord's glory, with the emphasis being more on the Lord's glory. Some of you might recall your Sunday school days or perhaps your church membership days, the times when you were preparing to make your public profession of faith. I was required to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism over a number of years for the moment that I would appear before the session for my examination, my public profession of faith examination. I was in a group with others, and I was delighted to kick it off with the first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It was nice to start off with the professional faith examination with with a softball question, an easy question. I mean, who doesn't know what is the chief end of man? But then the follow-up questions came, which I had not expected, and they went like this. How do we glorify the one who is consummately glorious? Can we even add to his glory? And the questioning did not stop there. How 
Can you, as a polluted sinner, even be in the presence of a holy God? These follow-up questions were a bit more challenging. But are they not in the same vein as verse 3? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It reminds me of another confessional formulation from the Heidelberg Catechism. How are you righteous before God? That's question number 60. And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and I've never kept any of them, and I'm still prone always to all evil, Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only... I accept such benefit with a believing heart. As we noted last time, this psalm commands a real sense of worship. It is framed dialogically. You have questions and answers. You cannot worship the king of glory properly unless you know the answers to these questions. And that requires genuine faith. And how can anyone ascribe glory to the king if that one does not know him, believe him, and trust him? So as we work out our way here to verses 8 and 10 this morning, let's first review the answer to the question that we considered last week. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. We won't delve into the doctrine of justification of faith with any great detail at this point, though we'll still come back to it. But it should be understood that we, as new creatures in Jesus Christ, have been given the privilege of coming into the presence of a holy God. That we can ascend the hill of the Lord and have fellowship with God on the basis of having received righteousness from Jesus. As Ephesians 2.8 puts it, this faith we have been given to us is a gift from God and not something that we have earned. The fellowship we have with God is our greatest treasure. It's amazing that we even have a sense of the glory of God, let alone be given the opportunity to ascribe glory to him. So while we do not know the exact context of this psalm, we can draw the broader environment of David's experience in a view of might and glory.
You almost visualize here the euphoria of 2 Samuel 6, when the ark was returned from the enemy and brought home. We see this procession with the ark of the covenant, the priests surrounding and King David with his 30,000 men drawing near to Mount Zion, a display of might and confidence. And then the triumphant shout to open the gates as the ark draws near to Jerusalem. You see, the king is approaching And it was a spectacular, a glorious event. Whenever people of a city in ancient times gathered to rejoice in the might of a conquering king, the homecoming for that victorious leader was nothing short of glorious. Now, think about the king who returns the ark, the presence of God the people of God. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But this is not for David. This is about our glorious God. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Without plowing the ground we covered last week, I believe one of the biggest areas in worship today that is sadly neglected and affects all of worship is the profound lack of proper adoration and awe. What does it mean to Adore God. What does it mean to stand in awe of a glorious God? And seminaries today that have programs like Worship Arts, which is a merging of theology and theater, are desperately trying to make the worship experience relevant for today's young audience. And what is so tragically missing is that God's self-authenticating and self-referential word that is the ultimate standard for doctrine and life, or sometimes we call it faith and practice, that is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, spells it all out here in Psalm 24. You do not create the glory You do not create the glory. You are not the mighty one. Do not fancy yourselves to put the spot on you in your worship, as if the glorifier becomes the object of the glory. Listen to this narrative from John 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples, well, they did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written down about him and had been done to him. So we're referring here to the ascension when Jesus was glorified and the disciples not not getting it all. Remember, they were looking at the clouds, seeing as Jesus was ascending and being glorified. It was later as Christ prayed the high priestly prayer that the Spirit would indwell them and really connect the dots of his messianic ministry, and then they would understand how these things all worked out toward the glory of the king. So Psalm 24 and the prophecy of the Old Testament is pointing to the bigger event of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some would argue that's about his ascension, and others would argue that it's really more about his coming back, his return. And I don't think it has to be an either or but a both and. For his ascension was glorious, absolutely. The day of consummation, the day of his return, will be most glorious. The worshipers of the previous baby boomers generation of pew-sitters and the current dynamics of the interactive worship scene those part of that today, have often wrestled with the what of worship. What to do during worship. What is it that we are to do? And too many people do not really want the word just simply proclaimed, a man behind the pulpit. They want the experience And they look to see how far they can go to catch some of that glory. Do I dare say, share in the the glory of God? Isn't God's glory my glory too, if I am a partaker of Christ? God's glory is God's glory alone. He alone is the I am. It isn't he, the I am, and you. That's not what defines God. God is, and was, and always shall be the I am. While you have been created in his image, you are not God. And too often, as we have said in the past, man has this propensity of wanting to cross that creator-creature line and be like God like our first parents lamely attempted to do, to be like God and to know right and wrong. And whenever the worshiper inserts him or herself in a setting where the public worship of God has been declared, where the glory falls on the performance or the speaker or the media, that is not glorifying God. That is glorifying self. And that, beloved, is idolatry. It must never be, look at me, 
I repeat, it must never be, look at me. I recall a few years back when a local individual said, and he was not associated with our work here, but he said, yeah, we have a lot of churches in this area, but we, meaning my church, has the best show in town. That's what he said. The best show in town. Then later, a, a family relative who had been absent from the body of the church for a number of years started attending a, a service because, as, as he told me in his words, I go now for the music and occasionally for the talk. I go now for the music and occasionally for the talk? What I want to know, beloved, is do we attend worship to glorify God? Is it about Him or me? And it's really about both. You worshiping Him. Who is this King of glory? Do people really even know what the word glory means? Glory be to God means to, to reserve for him your highest praise and honor. And there is a distinction here. We don't put others with God. We don't glorify things or each other or ourselves as we glorify God. John Flavel in his exposition on the Shorter Catechism states, man cannot glorify God by adding any new to Degree of glory to him. And then offers the scripture to support that. Job 36, 7. If you be righteous, what givest thou him? But by manifesting his glory with the lips. Psalm 50, verse 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me or with the life. So what, what Flavel is getting at is you can't add to his glory but you can reflect it. You can make it manifested, although limited in even doing that, but you can make it known by your lips. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And Thomas Vincent in his commentary writes, to glorify God is to manifest God's glory, not only passively, as all creatures do, which have neither religion nor reason, but also actively. Men glorify God when the design of their lives and actions is the glory and honor of God, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you. It refers to 1 Peter 2.9 there. When inwardly, Vincent continues, they have the highest estimation of him, the greatest confidence in him, and the strongest affections to him that is glorifying of God in spirit. Glorify God in your spirit, which is God's, 1 Corinthians 6.20. When outwardly, they acknowledge God according to the revelations he hath made of himself, when with their lips they show forth God's praise. And again, he goes back to referring to what our previous commentator did, he that offereth praise glorifieth me. Psalm 50, verse 23. Dear friends, 
Revelation 5, 9 and 10 tell us, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take a scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, the strength and might of the Lord is ultimately the sons conquering death and removing the curse of the law. In our glorifying God, in our worship of God, we reflect how he has appeased the wrath of God and removed our sin and guilt. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. We are not a player in this. We are not partners with God in this, but we are the recipients of Christ's glorious victory over the grave. The one who knew no sin and became sin for us, that our sin would be removed. That's the great victory here. That's the might of King Jesus. Again, as Psalm 24 directs us to see the person and work of the mighty Christ, it gives us pause to to reflect the time of worship when this psalm was penned. How the very ark was the symbolic presence of God being brought to Jerusalem. On top of the ark was the lid called the mercy seat, which was also referred to as the atonement covering. And the ancient text conveyed that as a place of appeasement or a place of propitiation or expiation, and that is the removal of sin and guilt. So propitiation is God's wrath being brought on our Lord Jesus Christ and he appeasing that wrath, and then also the removing of sin and guilt, the expiation. And so every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of animals, sacrificed for the atonement of the sins of God's people. This blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the purpose being that it is only through the offering of blood that the condemnation of of the law could be taken away. And the violations of God's laws removed. And all of those pointed to the better, more complete sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Romans 3 puts it, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Beloved. The consecutive order of Psalms 22, 23, and 24 make 
for an edifying read into the ministry of Jesus, which should command our worship. We go from the forsaken Christ to the shepherding goodness and mercy of Christ to the triumphant entry of Christ the King. In other words, He died for us, He is currently caring for us, and He rules and will return in consummate glory for us. And we are to worship Him. We are to exalt Him highly and bestow on Him the name that is above every name. We are His ambassadors, doing His bidding according to His regulative word. We are not to be innovative in our worship and trying to reimagine, rebrand, and reconnect to Christ. It is very simple. It is very simple. But the church wants to make it complicated. And for this reason... The Bible is not going to tell me how to worship God. That's a ridiculous notion. Because God's word regulates how we are to worship him. And the incarnate word of of God, Jesus himself, the king of glory, explains that, that man should not determine how things should be. Listen to his word from John 6. When they found him on the other side... Of the sea, they they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For in him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And he answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, that what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. You see, the church of all these Jews were trying to define who he is, and what he has done, and how to worship him. And so Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from the heaven. In other words, this is who I am, the way, the truth, and the life. And they rejected that. Don't you tell us how to worship, how to glorify. That's essentially what's going on here. But notice what our Lord said. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This has always been about the will of God. Not us. We don't determine who the king of glory is. We don't determine how he is to be glorified. We worship and glorify God according to his will by his very word. Because in the end, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Last time we concluded with this. Until he comes again, you are being built into that holy place as living stones into a suitable dwelling place for the Lord. And we had meditated upon what that means about the Spirit taking residency in us, in each one of your hearts, and how awesome that truly is. He is the King of glory. He is the King of glory. And so keeping that in mind, we come into his presence as those who have been occupied by him, his spirit taking residency in us, that we would acknowledge his might, his glory, who is his King of glory, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray.